Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Formerly known as Romaniacs. It's a big week, so let's dive right in with four of our regulars. Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello. Your blog just ran something about behavioural biases uh, relating to working from home and things to avoid if hybrid working is to be the new normal. Uh, what, what are the bad habits that plague Zoom meetings? Oh, there are so many. This is uh, the LSE's behavioural science department, which has gone through uh, all these all these bad things that we do on Zoom and we do because we're separated from uh, other colleagues. Um, there's the, something called the newbie effect when someone has joined a company but never physically seen their colleagues. <laughs> so their entire interactions with them are virtual. Like the 2019 uh, Tory MP intake. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> or the can't be bothered effect when people sort of become so disengaged, they basically go to meetings, but they switch off their Zoom camera. Um, and uh, so you have no idea whether they're actually there or not. Is there a Jeffrey Tubin effect? <laughs> or is that a very niche, <laughs> niche bias? I liked the bike shedding effect. I don't know why it's called that. But it says the time a group spends discussing any issue will be inverse to the consequentiality of that issue. <laughs> Which yeah. I do think our grueling search for a new podcast name disproves that. <laughs> <laughs> it took forever and it was deeply consequential. Yeah, I did, I did like the fact that the name of the podcast did eventually reflect some of the angst that went into choosing it. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> Every time a new suggestion came up, oh God, what now? <laughs> yeah. uh, Alex Andreu is now a clean-shaven writer, actor, singer and chef. Hi, Alex. I was clean-shaven three days ago. I'm Greek. I've got a full beard. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't keep a Greek beard down. Um Hopefully this won't come up on today's show, but Keir Starmer got into trouble for not calling out a white nationalist who phoned into LBC to babble about the great replacement theory. Uh, Some experts on far-right trolling say that quietly shutting the conversation down is actually better than getting into a row about fringe racist uh, conspiracy theories, uh, even if it looks um, like you're not being tough enough. What would you do in this situation if it was Ask Alex on LBC? Um, Well... I think I would be fully cognizant of the fact that quietly shutting the conversation down is a better approach. And still I would launch into some sort of tirade. Um, because in a, in a very weird way, being calm and measured about stuff like that is actually a little bit of white privilege. Um, you can only do it from a dispassionate position. If you're a little bit brown or a little bit Muslim or a little bit foreign, it's a lot harder to sort of keep very calm and very detached when someone is attacking basically your right to exist. So, you know, yes, good, but also everyone should be allowed to uh, uh, express themselves as they want, I think. Uh, although LBC could, should, we probably all agree that LBC should be a bit better at not letting fash on the air. Yeah, well, in the first place, let's 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 start by not letting them actually be the presenters, and then <laughs> and then we can we can move to maybe filtering the callers out. <laughs> Ian Dunt is editor at large of Politics.co.uk and author of How to Be a Liberal. Hi, Ian. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, it's a crowded field, but, but Wally of the Week, I think, for you is Desmond Swain, who told Channel 4 News this health and scientific lobby has to be put in its place. Oh, yeah. um, but this was not what most horrified you about his appearance, was it? No, it's his fucking clothes, man. Have you seen the state <laughs> of him? 
I just can't, like, obviously, like, the, you know, you can, you can find this video. This is an, inter- an interview with Channel 4. When would this been? Tuesday night. So you can see it, and you can see the content. The content is the kind of guy that, like, a fucking interrogator in the Spanish Inquisition would have just been like, oh, come on, Desmond. I'm sure there's some good things about science that you must believe in. Like, he is off the scale fucking bellendery. Like, you couldn't even see him soar off the edge of the universe. But his clothes, I was looking at it, I'm just like, what the fuck is going on with this man's collar? And I, I think, first of all, I was like, is, is it that he's left the little plastic thing in the collar when you first buy it? And then I was like, no. And apparently people online were saying, no, he's got one of these sort of 1920s changeable collars, but he's not. And by the way, incidentally, fuck knows who who decides that the collar needs to be changed on the shirt. Like either the shirt is dirty or the collar. I mean, you just get the fucking shirt with the collar. But then <laughs> he, he wore it wrong. So what, what that means is, I mean, he wore, honestly, just look at him. He looks like a fucking state. What that means is, he is like, at least when you look at Jacob Rees-Mogg, he succeeds in looking like a parody of himself. Swain has fucking failed at looking like a parody of himself. And that really, I mean, was kind of the, the highlight of my week and certainly the most important political moment. Are you meant, sorry, but this is a game changer. Are you meant to take those little plastic things out then? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, you know the the little things that look like like tiny bookmarks. Are you meant to throw? Oh those no, wait, away? not those. No, those are the bits for in the you know that keep the collar. Yeah, inside. I mean the bit at the front, like where the front button is. Oh right, 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 right. Okay, yeah, okay. no, no, those, those, stay, those stay. No, I thought you were meant to throw away those little things. I thought, oh my god, I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> Maybe he also hates the men's fashion lobby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Naomi Smith is Chief Exec of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Dorian. What do you make of the very important YouGov survey out today that shows that 52% of Britons do not think Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Is this just what the the Tory-owned pollsters want us to think? (laughs) Like it says in that Peter Hitchens meme. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, look, just as um, in the referendum of 2016, 52% of the people were wrong, so 52% of the people are wrong again. Um, of course, it's a fucking Christmas movie. Stephen D'Souza, who wrote the film, has publicly said that Die Hard is indeed a Christmas movie. And so for that matter, it's Gremlins. And they're probably the only two Christmas movies I've ever watched, apart from Home Alone, which uh, has a whole new meaning this year, I guess. Um, uh, but I've not even seen that one for a good twenty-five years. Well, this this may come up on the on the on the on the Christmas uh, live show because Die Hard is, of course, not a Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> on, oh, wow! On, it just takes place at Christmas. No, stop it now. On on less. <laughs> Less serious matters. Uh, what does your latest Brexit polling show? <laughs> um, well, we polled people at the weekend uh, and found that the country overwhelmingly supports ending the Brexit transition period with <clears throat> a trade deal. 66% supported leaving with a deal compared to just 15% who said they would prefer no deal. I mean, 15% is still a scary-ish number, um, given you know just how catastrophic no deal will be for this country. Um, and the poll also found that conservative voters prefer a trade deal to no deal by a ratio of two to one. Every region of the UK came out in favour of it. Uh, London and the north of England were the regions with the highest levels of support for a deal, 73% and 68% respectively. So let well, no one tell you that there aren't you know sensible people in the north. 
Well, I used to I used to work on the basis that ten percent of people had the most appalling views you could imagine. Um, since twenty sixteen, that's gone up to fifteen. So this is <laughs> this this is actually entirely in keeping with that. That this is the same fifteen percent probably believe in I don't know fucking like hanging. <laughs> well, yes, yes. I mean, yeah, probably yeah. you know, and and yeah. and I know gunning down you know refugees or something do you know what i mean there's there's 15 yeah, yeah. who believe the darkest shit you can imagine yeah. so if it's only yeah. that much for no deal the no deal is in the is in the sin bin with those yeah. other niche interests and and i should think that that overlap with all those people that said they didn't care if they lost their job or a family member lost their job if they got no deal and all this of it yeah well yes the the, the very worst of society captured in that 15 yeah so if you're in a lift there were nine other people one and a half of them <laughs> fucking hateful <laughs> Oh, it, really it really isn't fair to talk about Priti Patel that way. <laughs> <laughs> this week, the latest on the twin clusterfucks of Brexit and COVID, plus our inaugural Oh God, What Now awards and stirring Christmas messages from our very own royal family, in which Ian, of course, is Charles. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, who's the rest of us? Who's everyone else? If he's Charles, Ross is queen. Ross has got to be queen. What? Yeah. Ross, yeah, Ross is very regal. That's Margaret, come on. <laughs> Alex, Alex is, do you want to bag anyone? Do, yeah, can I not have Phil, Philip, please? That's on the basis that she's Greek, because there's a lot of this sort of thing going on. <laughs> you can be the Greek man. The latest Brexit deadline went whizzing by on Sunday with an announcement that the negotiations would continue. Alex, it is Wednesday. It's 6.15pm. What are you hearing from your man in Brussels? Well, I've had a very controversial, it turns out, um, WhatsApp message that just read, um, Fumé Blanche, so white smoke, um, (laughs) Is he a simple? Is, is he a simple salt of the earth, uh, red wall voter? Yes, yes. Um, so, so um, that's been denied by various other sources. Uh, my other source at the Commission says they think that it's deal done at the negotiator level, but that the political oversight people have not bought into it yet. Um, I think Naomi's had a similar um, briefing from Brussels and she's got a a little more detail on the deal. This is what would happen in many ways if there was a deal because the stage management of it will be all left to the UK because they're the ones with a difficult domestic audience. Um, And just before we started recording, there was another story that Parliament was going to rise tomorrow um, for the Christmas holiday. Um, the interpretation of that from some quarters is that it's to put more pressure on the EU. I don't see that. Um, I, I think that plays entirely into the idea of, of stage managing a deal so that, you know, he can come back on Friday and say, recalling everyone because at the, you know, at the 11th hour I have saved the country. So, so, and also, it's not something that that's been officially announced. It's just something that apparently he told the 1922 committee in in their weekly Zoom call. Th- there's loads of conflicting stuff around. 
But I think a deal has been done. And the reason why I think that is because the position before all the shenanigans of the last two months, the position was this, that uh, Johnson was going to cave in on the level playing field stuff. And I hear from a lot of very reliable sources that that has happened. And the, th- that the EU was going to give him a big win on fishing, which is what he would use to sell the deal back home. All of that went to pot when the, when the internal market bill was introduced. Now, the internal market bill was taken off the chessboard last week. Those clauses are no longer in it. And so it makes sense to me that we've reverted to what the position was before. The EU will get their way on level playing field. Johnson will get a, a, a small but symbolic win on fisheries. Naomi, is that in line with what you've had? Very much so. Alex and I both uh, had things leaked to us at, I think, exactly the same second and then triangulated <laughs> with each other. And they're not from the same sources. So, uh, was yours at least in English? Mine was, yes. <laughs> uh, it was deal done, government announcement Friday, Commons Monday, Tuesday. Um, I think if anyone's sort of been following what we've been saying about how Labour are going to vote and the whole issue over abstention versus voting for the deal, uh, they may have got a get-out-of-jail-free card on it because it may not be a straight-up-and-down vote, rather uh, voting for the implementation of it and and various different parts of it uh, because Johnson was going to have as much trouble with the Tories on that straight up and down vote as he would have been able to cause Keir Starmer for Labour. Nothing much more to add other than, yes, we think that that there's been some big movement from the UK side on level playing field, um, agreement in principle to retaliations on market distortions, but with slower action on punishments and uh, different bilateral and independent arbitration mechanisms. Um, And then on the fish, that's going to be the really interesting one because there wasn't a lot of wriggle room for either side on that and it wasn't obvious at all. So it may be something like, and this is, I I haven't had this leaked to me, this is, you know, just my my own thoughts about it. Perhaps Ireland uh, took a hit and has told France they'll give them extra fishing waters, um, you know, because uh, for Ireland, no deal would have been such a, a, a dreadful thing. So fingers crossed that this doesn't get kiboshed as soon as we've recorded this <laughs> and put it out. Um, but it is now looking much more likely that we've got a deal. Interestingly, the other thing I heard is that uh, the the EU has agreed to sort of water down arbitration penalty mechanisms, rather. Um, so they will go to penalties only after arbitration, mediation or whatever, uh, you know, but that Johnson has agreed to the European Court of Justice being the the arbitrator of last resort, um, which would be a massive movement from the UK. But I've only had that from one person. Ian, did did you sort of expect this? Because I, I wondered that if um, if Johnson just needed to show willing before walking away and blaming the perfidious EU, he could have done that on Sunday, and he could go, "Look, I've done my bit," but they just they just wouldn't play ball. And so, when as soon as it was uh, extended on Sunday, did that signal to you that there was a real desire for a deal? No, I didn't expect anything. And I I think I've been thinking about this whole thing wrong for the last year, really, of constantly trying to sort of evaluate these incentives, you know, like, for instance, you know, his attack on the competence from Starmer, so he'll be really keen to get a deal or, or whatever. And especially becoming too imbued with this idea of the theatre of it all. 
Um, and, you know, what are you trying to create? What's the impression you want to create by doing a certain action? Where I think actually events have been much more chaotic than I, I had really thought. I'd gone into it thinking he really has a set outcome he's pursuing and this is all just the faff and theatre nonsense. And I don't think that's right. I think really it, that until quite late, it's not clear that Downing Street knew which way it was going to go. And, and part of that is genuinely their, their sort of instinctive assessment of what their principles are. But mostly it's this this sense of calculating what they can get away with politically, right? And there's so much uncertainty. Like you look at, you know, we know that in January there's going to be a, a certain amount of border chaos. Could be an absolute fucking shed load. Could be just a shambles. And you think, wh- where does the blame lie for that? Would the blame be affected by there being a deal? Would you get authorship of it? Would it actually be possibly easier for him to deflect the blame for that onto the Europeans if there wasn't a deal? in terms of how the public see. And I think all those calculations are there. So honestly, no. And I think, I, I, I really think that the last few days, especially the last couple of weeks, have been proper touch and go on whether it was going to be deal or no deal. I don't think this is all theatre. Um, some places commentators have been saying the EU's focus on ensuring fair competition shows a, a lack of belief in the single market. Do you agree with that analysis? No, and it's quite popular now. Um, so you get a lot of sort of Brexit experts going, isn't it funny, you know, that ultimately the EU is quite nervous about the single market because it's going so far to make sure that Britain doesn't do competition, doesn't get any kind of competitive advantage over it. Now, I think that's a real, it's a really important error for them to be making because it signals just how little they understand about what the single market is. The single market isn't just this idea for increasing economic wealth. It's also, it's a mixture of left and right ideas bubbling together. And at its heart is that thing of, we are stopping a situation in which multinationals, for instance, get to bounce around the world, targeting their investment for countries that lower their labor standards, lower their environmental standards, that subsidize, and instead say, no, you fucking come anywhere near us, you come anywhere part of this continent, we have the same rules that apply. You do not get to undercut us in that way. You do not get to have this game where nation states, in a way that is rational individually, do something that is irrational for them on the collective level by constantly undermining one another in a bid to attract investment. That's a really crucial part of of how it operates. You cannot, in that scenario, have Britain just on the side. And the temptation would be there because it's got the language, it's got the infrastructure to to attract investment, just cutting corporation tax to the bone, subsidizing industries. And and subsidizing industries sold as a left-wing idea, in fact, has very right-wing repercussions because, of course, you're just giving money often to these multinational corporations, lowering regulations. That is the thing that they've been keen to stop. And, and the reason for it is not just some sort of nervousness around the single market. It's about that sense of solidarity that is supposed to be key to why the EU is a successful endeavour. That's deal news. Turning to COVID, despite uh, much of the country being in tier three, plans for a five-day Christmas amnesty remain in place. Uh, Roz, has the government talked itself into a hole that it, it can't get out of now? Yeah, it's it's very difficult for the government to change its advice now, even though, of course, Wales today has changed its advice and gone, said that only two families rather than three should meet up over Christmas. But the strategy now, insofar as we can discern it, is to throw the responsibility for making decisions about meeting up over Christmas over uh, onto individuals. Yeah. Now, that's a very conservative tray. Um, it, it's something that does unite 
both sort of Tory headbangers and economic liberals, this belief that people should be able to make their own decisions about risk. But it is totally at odds, of course, with the very prescriptive approach to the rest of human interaction that we see in all the rest of the rules in tier three and so on, where you know exactly, or you should know exactly how many people you can meet up with and in what location. So there is a cognitive dissonance there, which I think people are understandably going to struggle with. Um, You have to hope, I think, that if, as it seems apparent the public mood is changing in in, in favour of caution, that those people will take the logical step and then will not get together. But as ever, the problem with that is it's the people who are hardest to reach, furthest from these warnings, really the most vulnerable, most disadvantaged, who are more likely to suffer badly from COVID, who do take that risk. Mm. So the right wing press is all gung ho for Christmas. Boris fights the Grinches and so on. Um, but they do represent a minority of the public, according mm. to polls. Like Ross said, the mood has public mood has changed quite a lot. Has the government misread it? And, and does this perhaps say something about the fact that the government really believes that the Telegraph and the Mail, you know, speak for England? even when they don't. <laughs> well, you're quite right, because, and I think actually what we might be seeing is the effect of Dominic Cummings having left number 10. Because say what you like about him, and boy, we have. One thing he did understand was that actually Brits, the average Brit, is quite authoritarian. And lots of people do like to be told what to do in situations like this. Um, and and they don't really buy into this whole, you know, uh, pa- pa- passing of the buck and the responsibility, as, as Ros said, from government over to them to make their own choices. Um, so I agree. I think they, they have misread the country on this. The country do want much more prescriptive handling. And I think they were actually pretty prepared to dial down Christmas. Nobody that, you know, that we've been monitoring through our work at Best of Britain and through our focus groups and polling is seeming to come up with all of this, oh, I must have Christmas, I must have Christmas. People really do understand, we've done this for 12 months, why risk it all now, just as we're about to get a proper vaccine rollout, fingers crossed, um, next year. So I, I think they probably have misread it, yes. It seems like a catch-22 for Johnson. I don't think it necessarily needed to have been that way. I think if he had, as Naomi said, explain that right now it was not safe to get together, put in place two or three extra bank holidays in April, May, yeah, yeah. Um, when uh, when basically the most vulnerable people, all being well, will have been vaccinated and we don't need to worry so much, thrown it forward to then. I think people would have understood that. And let's face it, in the context of the economic situation we find ourselves in, a couple of bank holidays is neither here nor there. So I, th- I think that's the approach that I would have been yep. better now that we do have an exit strategy for, for COVID with vaccines. And sorry to bring it back to Brexit, but just ever so quickly, this is, of course, exactly the same thing they're doing. They're telling everyone else to prepare, businesses to prepare. And yesterday we saw the uh, iconic toy manufacturer Hornby coming out and saying that they're cancelling all sales outside of the UK. Because if you do not know what tariffs are going to be placed on the component parts that you import or on the final product that you export, how can you at all price and then logistically how can you guarantee to a customer that you will be able to deliver on time and it's just once what, again passing that buck from government onto everybody else why don't they use the, the blame. why don't they use the common sense and make up their own tariffs <laughs> <laughs> people probably bloody will
Alex, the Sunday Times Insight team published a story uh, over the weekend about how the government delayed the second lockdown for six weeks. Briefly, Sage recommended a circuit breaker in mid-September, but Johnson and Sunak rejected it after a meeting with four scientists, only one of whom represented the Sage view. Uh, the others, two from Oxford University and Anders Tegnell from Sweden, recommended a version of herd immunity. The delay, according to the article, caused an estimated 1.3 million extra infections and between seven and 13,000 additional deaths. Um, I found this really shocking, um, and particularly sort of Sunak's uh, role in this. Were you surprised that it, it wasn't a bigger story? It didn't, didn't sort of become a real scandal during the week? Um, I'm not surprised, actually, because I think psychologically there is, and I struggle with this at times as well, because you you don't want people to lose all faith in government and all faith in the institutions that are issuing the advice. It's a really difficult needle to thread um, to say, because if you keep going, they're lying to you, don't believe anything they say, then you're basically amplifying the noise of the people who are saying uh, lockdowns do nothing um, in a weird way. So the the voices of the sensible are in danger of merging with the voices of the not sensible. Does that make sense? So And so I think they tread very, very carefully. But it is effectively a repeat of what happened in March, you know, minus the excuse that nobody knew what they were doing. At some point, what became more important than the expert advice was what anti-lockdown people within the Tory party would put up with. So the scientific advice became a factor in the mix, not even the most important factor in the mix. Um, and, and I think that's a really bad position to be in, with several months of this thing still to run. Ian Sunak is Britain's most popular politician at the moment. But not only was he against the lockdown at this crucial point when Hancock Gove and even Cummings were, were pro, um, it turns out in the article he didn't even consult Sage before launching Eat Out to help out. And when Starmer endorsed the Sage policy um, in mid-October, Sunak called him detached from reality. Um, I mean, even we've been sort of... Uh, relatively speaking, when we talk about the Tory cabinet, we've been sort of fairly positive about Sunak. We're going to have to, you know, when all of this is out, we're able to reflect. Are we just going to have to reassess his record here when it comes to kind of the, uh, like you said, that sort of false choice between the economy and health? Yeah, I mean, look, everything that we read about the way that he behaves behind the scenes on this issue, on that economy versus public health, is that he is catastrophically wrong and deeply, deeply misguided. And we have to have, we have to remember that when we, when we celebrate in any way a member of this cabinet, that is within a very specific context. And the context is this cabinet, right? So, I mean, if you look at the two people on either side of that debate, so you'd have Matt Hancock on one side, Sunak on the other. Now, Hancock has been largely right on these issues. And he is, I think, you know, above, quite significantly above the average performance of a cabinet member. He is also so catastrophically inept that in any other cabinet, he would be by distance the worst fucking person in it. In this one, he's one of the best. And the same is true for Sunak, where I think you just think he is a cut above the vast majority of people in, in, in around him. He is much more intelligent. He's more presentable. He is still earth shatteringly fucking shit at the job that he is doing and at the political judgment which he exercises when he does it. It's just that within this context, he looks rather more impressive because of the kind of churn of personalities that's operating around him. 
Um, conversely, and this may be unpleasant for you, um, but, you know, we should respond to the information as it comes out. You know, Cummings was, was sort of branded very early on, sort of Mr. Herd Immunity, and he was willing to sort of, uh, you know, kill your grand to save the economy. Uh, in this story and in other reporting, you know, it turns out that he was, he was he's, you know, very much on the more on the sensible side of the lockdowns. Is he somebody that we're going to sort of uh, reassess specifically relating to COVID? I mean, maybe a, a bit. He Okay, let, let me put it this way. There are th- essentially three groups when it comes to COVID policy, right? There's the kind of sceptical, uh, lockdown sceptics denying it, pushing that all away. There's the people in the middle who keep on making certain decisions one way or another. That's Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings fits into that category. And then there's those who are following the scientific advice. Now, he's in the middle. We have seen again and again, you look at countries that have succeeded around the world and they have the same qualities when it comes to this issue. They're proactive rather than reactive. They're looking to eliminate transition rather than mitigate it. They're going for initial very high restrictions rather than gradual restrictions in order to minimize damage. And they reject that false binary of economy versus public health. Now, fair credit to Cummings. He was not on that Sunak end of saying, well, I'm a critic of lockdown, but he was in the same place as Johnson, in that middle bit of, oh, should we, shouldn't we? And that's the kind of government that allows COVID to run rampant. And that's what we've seen for the last year. So yeah, he's not as bad as the truly buffoonish morons who really just wouldn't accept any of the reality of what this entailed. But I don't think that that puts him in a category where we should really celebrate his accomplishment. Finally, the vaccination rollout is going well so far. It's early days, but it's it's sort of on schedule. Do you think that people's memories being what they are, that if the government gets this bit right, then a lot of the earlier errors will be forgiven or forgotten uh, by most voters. And and it'll only be us banging on about how they literally let thousands of people die because they listen to quacks. Um, I do actually suspect that will happen. Um, The reasons for that um, are several, actually. One is that I think next year we're going to be talking about unemployment and economic catastrophe, which is going to concentrate people's minds and give them a lot to think about. Um, there's also the fact that compared with other European countries, we've done pretty badly, but it hasn't been that different. Um, while there have been some better, much better examples of pandemic management in Asia, we have not seen it happen in, in, um, in Europe. And even countries that seem to get it do, do better at the beginning, like Germany, are, are now having to go into, back into lockdown because they're making repeatedly the same mistakes that we are making repeatedly. And I think to a certain extent that operates as a bit of a free pass for Johnson. The other thing is that this, sorry, do you want to say something else? No, I was going to say, well, they, and they say that we have nothing in common with, uh, with the continent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it must be a sat- matter of satisfaction to Johnson, I'm afraid that Germany is, is in the same, is in need more <laughs> than wise than we are. I'm afraid he probably enjoys that because that's the kind of person he is. So, but it speaks to something important about the pandemic as well, which is, this is a very different kind of pandemic from earlier ones. It's hard to say, this is a difficult thing to say, but these deaths, people's deaths were invisible to the vast majority of people who, who relatives and who didn't have relatives and friends who died and who weren't working in hospitals and care homes because that's where they took place. And it is very hard for people who, human beings who have trouble accepting the reality of death unless we're confronted by it and try desperately to avoid dwelling on it to take in the scale of the mortality. And, you know, that is why 9-11 will forever probably have 
a bigger impact on the American imagination than the hundreds of thousands, 300,000 Americans who have died in the pandemic. And it's been compounded by the fact that funerals have been very small because of social distancing. We've People have not had a chance to say goodbye. They have turned away from, they have turned away from confronting the reality of the pandemic, which is an entirely natural reaction. And we are storing up problems for ourselves as a society in doing this. But it is something that I think we are, we are doing. And that worries me a lot. Next up, it's time for the first annual Oh God, What Now Awards. Who has covered themselves in glory in 2020 and who wears the cloak of shame? Roz, uh, your first category is a positive one because we're positive people. Um, <laughs> who, who, is your, who is your hero of the year? It is very positive, I hope. Uh, so it's Stacey Abrams, um, the uh, Georgian uh, politician, who's a democratic politician, whose efforts to get out the vote on the ground in her own state really helped, did a massive amount to win it for Joe Biden. I mean, she helped to register, apparently. She was involved in registering 800,000 voters. That's a huge amount. And when you think of anybody, any individual's impact on politics, it's massive. And it's kind of heartening as well when you see that the sometimes malign impact that online campaigning can have, that some one individual going out on the ground can make that difference. And what about your disaster of the year? There are so many, aren't there? It was really so hard. To I mean, it's, it's one, it's one big disaster. But try and unpack. Yeah. It's a turducken of disasters. Yeah. But try <laughs> cut to the centre. Well, I'll just take one disaster that perhaps will stand in for many disasters, and that has been replicated many times. Um, awarding a PPE contract to a company called MedPro. Um, MedPro PPE only existed. It came into existence in May when the need for medical gowns became apparent. And within six weeks of it being set up, it got a £122 million contract. None of those gowns have been used. None of them. That is £122 million of public money. And strangely, you might think, that this was this country, uh, sorry, this company was set up by a close associate, uh, a former colleague of a Baroness Moan, who is a Tory peer. And you just see this over and over again, repeatedly. Companies formed solely for the purpose of making money out of the out of the exchequer, and then failing to do their jobs properly, and even worse, only getting the contract in the first place because of the connections they had and the fact that there was no time or motivation to put it out to tender. So that for me is it's symbol symbolic of so much that's happened this year. Still, I'm sure they won't get away with it. Um, <laughs> Ian, who is your dick of the year? Yeah, yeah, you gave me this um, this category, and I, just I don't like, know why. <laughs> Isn't it that guy that was on all the memes at the start of the year when you clicked on it? And yeah. <laughs> but it's quite—it's just—it's an impossible fucking question, isn't it? I mean, it's—it's it's like there's just too much competition. So I just thought, well, I, I was going to come up with some kind of hipster, you know, some kind of junior minister, and I could, and then I just thought, no, I mean, obviously. Like just objectively, the right question, the right answer to this question is the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And there is, it is worth just taking stock because, you know, it's now a year since the election. I'm just thinking the full scale of this man's failure in every capacity. I mean, he's failed on internal party management. He's failed 
really on having any kind of meaningful policy agenda at all or implementing it. He's failed, you know, bringing the country back together, which he promised he would do when he when he stood on the steps of Downing Street after the election. He's failed fundamentally on a properly deep spiritual level as someone in a position of authority to have the stature for the role. He's failed on COVID over and over and over again. He failed on the first lockdown, failed on opening up from the lockdown. He failed on tears. He failed on the second lockdown. He's now in the process of failing over Christmas out there today saying, I've just, uh, we just passed this law on Christmas, but we're not actually expecting you to follow the law. We want you to do the opposite of the thing that the law actually says. We just think you absolute craven, cowardly twat, like you lives will be lost on the basis of the prevarication, which we're demonstrating right now. He's failed on the measures themselves. He's failed on communicating them. He's failed on maintaining public trust because of the Dominic Cummings going to Barnard Castle debacle, where he didn't even have the, the bravery to sack him in that moment, despite the fact that that would sever the public's faith in the messages that were coming from government. And the cost of this, I mean, the cost of it, I mean, yesterday, 506 people died from COVID. Like 506 people died. When you look at these numbers daily, it's like Roz was sort of alluding to a moment ago, it's almost impossible to, to comprehend that this is fucking happening right now. And it's true that all governments would struggle, but it is not true that all governments have failed to deal with this thing. He has catastrophically failed over and over and over again. And that, honestly, if there was any justice in the fucking world, he would be considered dick of the year as an honorary position from now for the next hundred years in recognition of what he has fucked up over the course of the last 12 months. I think when you when you bring in uh, all the people dying, dick seems rather generous. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it seems rather almost lovable. Um, and who takes the award for bullet dodger of the year? I mean, I was going to say probably Sunak, but I, I think ultimately... And again, this is predictable, and I apologise for that. But on the other hand, it's objectively true, so I have no other choice. It has to be Jeremy Corbyn, doesn't it? It has to be. Because you look, you look at the year that we've had, and you think, do you remember when reputations died? You know, do you remember when people's reputation was contingent on their actions? This year, he was found to have allowed anti-Semitism to take root in the fucking opposition party, in the Labour Party. And he was not only that, but found guilty himself of having, uh, of having made uh, anti-Semitic statements and then having his own office interfere in the investigation of those statements. And instead of fucking recognizing it, he came out and did it again. And some, what that did it was much bigger than him. It meant that Labour couldn't deal with the problem. It meant that anyone who considered themselves loyal to Corbyn or have warm feelings towards him, was suddenly sort of triangulated into a position where they were opposed to the efforts to root it out of the Labour Party. Now, that is fucking diabolical on a moral level that I scarcely have the words to fucking describe. And yet there he is now, still treated as some kind of idiot saint. He is on the fucking Canary website yesterday, this conspiracy theorist <laughs> fucking cesspit. And there he is talking to his people and they are still, they are not going away. He has managed to solidify that tribal identity with all the poison in it, in a way that stops the Labour Party moving on, prevents anti-Semitism being rooted out of it. So if that's not dodging a bullet, I don't fucking know what is. But then at the same time, I honestly do not know how he or his followers at the moment sleep at night. Naomi, we've had months of politicians zooming in front of carefully curated bookshelves. What's your worst media moment of the year? 
Okay, I'm cheating slightly because I've got a domestic one and an international one. Um, Domestically, I think the most painful moment of the year was when Dominic Raab fundamentally misunderstood the symbolism of taking the knee in support of Black Lives Matter. Um, (laughs) I forgot about that. He just massively exposed his own rich white male privilege by saying it was the symbol of subjugation taken from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and this rather like him not understanding that Dover was an important port, even when he was Brexit secretary. It, it just displayed that he had no idea that it related, in fact, to the way that you know human rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. prayed. Um, and he he just demonstrated perfectly exactly why we need the BLM protest. And he just personifies all those who are completely and utterly out of touch with how systemic, institutionalized and, and widespread racism in society still is. Internationally, media moment of the year, worst media moment of the year. I mean, it just has to be Donald Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, mm-hmm. Uh after they'd accidentally booked the wrong Four Seasons venue for the press conference after the presidential election. <laughs> and instead of having to hold it at a Swiss hotel, Four Seasons Hotel, they had to do it in a car park outside a garden centre called Four Seasons Total Landscaping, situated between a dildo shop and a crematorium. With, <laughs> with fucking Giuliani dripping hair dye. I know. Uh, I mean, yeah, that that surely has to go down in the how not to do a press conference books. It was a satire defeating moment. And who's your best newcomer? So it would be far too obvious to say the amazing Marcus Rashford, who, let's face it, has had more influence on government than the opposition parties and all of the think tanks in the country combined. So instead, for me, it's a toss up between Scotch eggs because who knew they'd find a substantial role for themselves in 2020? <laughs> and uh, Rojo the cat, who made a splendid Zoom debut, you may remember, when he walked in front of uh, the camera of SNP MP John Nicholson's um, live stream to a parliamentary committee. And I think he, he was he was he was the first one to do that on you know when we were all moving into that brave new world of doing everything by Zoom and live streamed his bottom and his tail to the world and yeah good do on you him. do you expect that the tories will put forward a scotch egg at the next by-election <laughs> the next general election <laughs> they basically did last year there are there are a few new mps who who have a scotch egg like manner <laughs> uh, alex uh who do you think has had the best lockdown I like that I get the the hopeful categories today i'm going to go for captain tom moore uh, Captain Sir Tom Moore now. I, I think it came at a moment that the country was in a particularly dark place and, uh, you know, people felt powerless. And there was this 100-year-old man who decided to just walk around his garden um, and raise money. And by the end of it, by his 100th birthday, he had raised, as I understand it, with a sort of tax rebate that goes into donations, uh, nearly forty million pounds. I think that's extraordinary, and I think it it came at a point where it really challenged the the insidious notion that older people's lives didn't matter um, as much as the economy. And you you can find all sorts of problematic 
aspects about it. You can say that it shouldn't be up to individuals to be raising money for a health worker. All of that is right. But none of that takes away from his magnificent achievement and the fact that he um, he is the personification of one person making a difference. Um, and, and so he's my choice. And finally, a recipient for the Silver Lining Award, because uh, a global pandemic isn't entirely bad. <laughs> yes, this is a slightly weird category, but um, <laughs> I, I, I've decided to go for cities being reconfigured to accommodate cycling, um, because I think that there could never have been a moment where people wanted to cycle more because they were trying to to avoid uh, uh, public transport uh, because of the pandemic. And also, the traffic in the cities was so much lower than usual that it, it could allow, uh, you know, local councils and planning authorities to actually accommodate it and and put lanes in and all of that the the sales of bicycles have apparently gone up 63 percent uh compared to last year already and there's still a month to go and the the sales of e-bikes have gone up something like 170 percent so um if one is to find a, a silver lining then that that is mine can we all go on a, a- Oh, God, what now? Cycling outing together, please. I'd love yes, that. Yes, let's do that. No, I can't do that because I, I don't trust myself to cycle. Right, we'll get a tandem. You can sit on the back of mine. It's yeah. fine. Okay. Yeah. Also, it's um, important to note that Naomi just bought a bike. So it's not like you've... I mean, basically, you just need to use that thing you've spent a I'm, bunch of money on. I'm a stereotype, yeah. A, li- a little... Can we get one with a little sidecar for Ian? <laughs> yes, please. I will sit there and vape my fucking brains out. <laughs> Uh, so finally, I have to have the best and worst moments uh, of the year. So for the best, I'd say what's for me was when 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 Biden had finally won, and the only problem with it was that it wasn't really a moment; it was sort of stretched out. Uh, <laughs> and, and I thought he was going to win on Tuesday night, but there was it took it took a while, and I kind of went out for a sort of celebratory drink on on Wednesday just for lockdown. Uh, then went for another celebratory outdoor drink on Friday, but actually on Saturday, on the Saturday, it was watching uh, just like phone video footage of people dancing in LA, and there was a bunch of people dancing on a service station forecourt to "Since You've Been Gone" by Kelly Clarkson, uh, with the chorus "Since You've Been Gone, I Can Breathe for the First Time," and I just found that overwhelmingly emotional, and I feel like whenever I f- whenever I'm down. A lot of the time, uh, given the year, I just think, imagine how I would feel, how we would all feel if Trump had won. Mm-hmm. Like that was so sort of horrific and whatever, what, you know, reservation we'll have with, with Biden or what they can do if they don't control the Senate. Um, just having this, this, this suffocating weight that lifted off the world after four years is it, sort of extraordinary. I wouldn't care who 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 defeated him essentially. Um, so that was genuinely magical. I just wish that there had been a moment on Tuesday night when we could all have gone, yeah. <laughs> and the worst moment, I suppose predictably, but it, it really did stick with me, was as as Ian mentioned, you know, Cummings sort of press conference, which was it was the official end of lockdown gold. And the moment at which that kind of like, oh, we're managing and we're coping, we're all in this together and God bless Captain Tom Moore 
and uh, homeschooling's not that bad. Just, just went, and it felt like a real sense of betrayal and a kind of death of shame and a contempt for people. We'd all been expected to follow the rules, but not this guy. And then they got rid of this guy anyway because he fell out with Johnson's girlfriend, and it just. It it just seemed like it summed up everything that was wrong about um, about the way this government has handled uh, has handled the virus, um, and I know that it's very much hey why don't you make up your own mind what the rules are, uh, but I think that was a, a particularly sort of egregious example, and I really don't think that people's faith in the government or or really their sort of their willing compliance ever recovered from that. A bit like our festive monologues from last year, this week we're each going to leave you with a sort of reflection on the last year and maybe uh, a thought for the year ahead, starting with Ros Taylor. Yeah, um, I have to say here that the, the, the thing I've discovered is that social media is not a substitute for human contact. And you might say that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not talking here about Zoom, which is a substitute for human contact, albeit an inadequate one. I'm talking about Twitter, Facebook, message boards, those those kinds of things. And the, I, the things that have kept me together this year have actually been those occasions when I could meet up with other people, uh, of course. The occasional Zoom, movies, TV, walks, you know, novels, podcasts, dancing in the kitchen, whatever, they have never been on social media. In fact, sometimes in worst points in this pandemic, I found myself actually going to social media in an attempt to find other people who are as unhappy about me as something. And you know what the extraordinary thing is? I've ended up being even more unhappy as a result. It has really been very toxic. And so I hope that the pandemic has laid to rest the idea that we can use this as some sort of viable alternative to getting together, to talking to each other, because it isn't. And I think we see that we see that, for example, with, with, with journalism, where papers have shut down in their thousands in America, for example, in the pandemic, and it's being replaced by neighbourhood WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups, which are fraught, fraught with problems and no sense of replacement. So that's that's what I've learned. For what it's oh, man. Uh, Naomi? Um, I'm going to be thinking about how we tackle like all of the multifaceted challenges to our democracy in the round rather than just focusing on bloody Brexit because we all know that Brexit was a symptom of a much wider malaise in our you know, political culture and in the coming years we're going to need to work with others who share our broad values to offer the remedy and make the route to a closer relationship with Europe more likely and that remedy is needed because what we're witnessing is those who campaign for Brexit turning their attention to so many other social issues determined to further divide uh, the nation over immigration and asylum you know they're coming for the judiciary minority rights even what kind of bloody comedy is broadcast on television by the BBC. And because there is a multitude of threats, it's going to need a multifaceted campaign response rather than just a single issue movement like Remain was. And so, you know, if we want Britain to be a trusted and leading democratic trading ally, you know, pursuing more multilateral approaches to global problems like climate change and pandemics and to be a country that wants to improve our democracy and system engagement and all of that, then we're going to need, uh, you know, a multifaceted response to that and, and, and try and stop us becoming a country that 
turns in on itself even more, whipping up xenophobic tropes from the left and right and pushing our nearest neighbours away. So, you know, tackling all of that is going to be far more than I or Best of Britain or God What Now or any other single entity can achieve alone. Because in many respects, what we're really fighting for now is a basic defence of civil society and democracy in the round. So I'm going to be thinking about, you know, how we're going to monitor and organise against the threats that seek to undermine what we stand for, who we can work with and how we can build that cross-party support for a much deeper relationship with Europe again. Thanks, Naomi. Uh, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I was, I guess I'm just trying to think of the positive bits of what's been a f- fucking shitty year. And it is, and so there was bits in the lockdown. I mean, I'm not going to lie, like lockdown is now, I am fucking over that shit. Like I want out and I really do want to go drinking with my friends and, and just be out the house. And most importantly, I want to eat food and not have to clean up the fucking dishes afterwards. <laughs> that is crucial, just crucial at the moment. But like, there has... The main positive thing I can take is there is there was something profound about like that that vision of like a different and I'm sorry to use this phrase but it's just the right one that sort of work life balance that was presented and I kind of think it gets encapsulated now when I think of the concept of the commute you know just like two if you're lucky two hours a day one hour forward one hour back of just your fucking haggard face just shrinking into itself like some. Sweaty armpit, just netting towards <laughs> your fucking nose, pressed up, like trying to read a corner of the metro, even though it's just utter tripe. And thinking, what kind of a fucking life is this? You know, like what what am I doing with my life? And now that's got like I've, you claim that's the extraordinary thing is what life was like when you got to claim another two hours a day, and partly that's you get to spend time, you know, more time with people you like. But it wasn't just that; it was like you know what I found myself doing is like. There were less instances where I got like a ready meal from the supermarket. Because you get a ready meal when you're coming back on the commute and you're just like, it's been a long fucking day. It's been brutal. I'm just, I don't have the fucking energy. I'm just going to put something in the oven. And without the commute, even on a brutal hectic day, you didn't really feel the need to do that so much. You were more likely to actually put a bit of effort into the cooking and to try to make something of the evening, even if only to distinguish it from the day. And that does have like political consequences. Like if we, if we want to grasp if you want to take the glimmer of a better way of living from the crisis that we went through, there are conclusions there about the way that we plan towns. You know, conclusions with someone like me who kind of get, loves the buzz of like big cities. Actually, big cities could afford to lose a bit of that buzz if people can afford to just live a little closer to, the, to, to work from home. So they're only going into the office sometimes so that actually towns and suburbs get more planning attention than cities do. And for employers to just have a bit more trust in the people that work for you and to think you should appraise what they do at work by the results, not by that dreadful open plan thing of people looking like they're busy all the time, even though they're accomplishing absolutely fuck all. If we can just get some of those slightly better lessons out of this, then something good would have come from the whole God awful process. Uh, and Alex. I, I, I think what I saw this year was a, a little return towards not fully to, but towards empathy. I think it became much easier for people to uh, put themselves in someone else's shoes. And uh, more people understood this year than any other how difficult it is to live on statutory sick pay or unemployment benefit. Uh, More people understood this year what it must be like daily life for people who are housebound for non-pandemic reasons. 
there, there was a, a glimmer of the notion that if we focused resources and attention in international cooperation on a disease, we can solve that that puzzle. That if government decided to, it could just eliminate homelessness tomorrow, you know, and and so it became it became easier for us, I think, to understand our universe a little bit because there was a little bit of distance between us and the universe, you know, to understand how hard it is for Ian to wash his dishes. (laughs) (laughs) No one really understands that. That's very much on the small scale, but it is still a little bit of empathy. But the point is, a very useful muscle has been exercised this year. It doesn't mean it can't atrophy again, it's very easy to regress back to thoughtlessness and we have to make a conscious effort not to, but it is easier to stretch in that direction right now than it has ever been. So let's make a habit of the exercise. Thanks, Alex. And mine very briefly was just that because outside of the podcast, uh, it has been quite a, um, quite, you know, quite a, quite a bad year. Uh, and I've, I have a lot of time felt this very enormous sense of sort of uh, failure and uh and defeat and felt sort of quite a lot of sort of shame that i hadn't you know uh whatever done more um and then i think of all the bastards who feel no shame and face no accountability (laughs) and just fucking carry on from somebody like alison pearson who is a fucking lunatic <laughs> and has been wrong on every single aspect of code policy and is now literally disagreeing with herself because she can't even remember what she said before. Or uh, one of the people who uh, took a, um, you know, that, that, that sort of took a contract to supply loads of equipment that they then did not deliver or that was then never used. And so I think, well, why am I so sort of ashamed that I haven't, um, you know, that I haven't had more work or, or written another book? Um when these shits don't feel any shame at all. So what I've learned is to be kinder to myself and pretend that I am the CEO of MedPro. (laughs) (laughs) Your your advice to the listeners is be more like Alison Pearson. Yeah, just just like, (laughs) just like, just like, don't give a shit. Don't, don't, don't sort of shame yourself. Find other people to shame. Alison, Alison Pearson isn't going to shame herself, so I'm going to have to do it for her. Do we not feel empathy for Alison Pearson in any way at all? No. Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. I do. A lot of empathy. And her family. I have a lot of empathy for her family. I have a lot of empathy. Yeah, I have a lot of empathy for her family. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the end of the show. Uh, We have so many emails for But Your Emails that we're going to nudge them into the extra bit for Patreon backers. So you will have many, many But Your Emails. For now, thanks to Alex. Thank you. Roz. Thank you. Ian. Thank you very much. (laughs) Prince (laughs) Prince Charles there. Uh, Naomi. Cheers. Uh, if you're listening on Thursday, don't forget our live Christmas podcast tonight at 8pm. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, whose new album, England is a Garden, would perhaps make a good Christmas present to play while reading How to Be a Liberal or The Ministry of Truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, or any books written by, oh God, what now, panellists. <laughs> just, just a suggestion. Uh, and let's thank our latest Patreon backers. 
All my thanks and best wishes for the holiday to Giles Byford, Stephen Slater and Kane Sadler. Hello and a big old Irish nolig honna yiv from me to Thomas Glanville, Rahid and Tom Byrne. Yes, yes, hello and thank you to uh, Ian Udale, Miranda and Anthony Knox. Happy holidays from me to Rachel Woodward, Tom and Alistair Lachlan. And finally, thanks for me to Al Hagen, Dalman and Katie Lelliot. Take care and we'll see you next year. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Ros Taylor, Naomi Smith and Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Now Dalek Flowen, one and all. Hello and welcome to the extended extra bit of Oh God, What Now, especially for Patreon backers. This week we're doing a bonus expanded edition of But Your Emails with some of the questions we couldn't answer. Well, we could answer them, but we couldn't get round to answering them <laughs> earlier, earlier in the year. Imagine writing a letter to Father Christmas that's delivered instantly by a multi-billion dollar company. That's email. This week... <laughs> This this week we're doing some bonus email questions from listeners in the extra bit. So we'll start with a question from Laura Marcus, who says, does protesting reap more rewards than achievement? I'm thinking of Brexit, but it also extends to other current issues such as Trump and Corbyn. Is the journey the bit their followers really enjoy? Like the dog that catches the car but doesn't know what to do when it gets there. If Corbyn had the whip restored, challenged the leader, became leader again, would that make his followers really happy? Is this the real reason so many Leave voters are angry, disappointed, disillusioned, whereas we who voted Remain are reconciled and have made plans? Uh, I, I don't know how reconciled. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that all leavers are angry and that all remain is so like reconciled. Reconciled, but I, I. But we get the general point. Um, Roz, uh, what do you think? Um, well, Laura is absolutely right that protesting can can reap more rewards if, in the process, you discover a community that you didn't know you had. I mean, I'm not. I, I don't think I'm perhaps pushing this too far to suggest that some of us may have found a community that we didn't know we had, and uh, it led to a podcast, and maybe even more than one podcast, and that simply didn't exist before we had something to protest about. So, yeah, there there is certainly that vibe, and. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I am in any sense reconciled to Brexit, but finding a community has certainly made the pain. And that's a taster for the extra bit in the last edition of Oh God, What Now of 2020. Sign up to Patreon if you want to hear more in the extended ad-free Patreon-only edition. Thank you so much for listening throughout this weird year. This time in 2019, we didn't know if we would even be doing a podcast in 12 months' time, but we're still here and our new guys, and we're glad you are too. <laughs>